0: Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina.
1: Good afternoon, folks. This is John Grace and Daniel Medina here at Fiscal Fitness on Voice America, and yes, that's what we do. Uh, we identify the questions and then do our best to try and answer them and prioritize things from the standpoint of recognizing what things really should be at the top of our list as opposed to getting lost in the weeds with looking at things that really are immaterial or they're just not that important. So, I mean, we're gonna get into the details in terms of what's going on in this market, both in terms of the, uh, the, the performance so far this year, but also the long larger perspective And just so that you know, here's our outline real quickly. We want to look at the seven worst things people do with their stimulus checks. Now, understand, the last thing Daniel and I do is berate people for how they're spending. But we do ask people to be conscious of their spending and to do everything they possibly can to have their spending levels lower than their income levels. As Daniel is fond of saying, it's all about the cash flow. And many of us just have to have a very high cash flow. And then they wonder why their account's down. And so it's so funny when we meet with clients, they go, oh, well, my goodness, my account's down. we like, well, here's the market performance, but let's see. You opened this account in 2000, 2010 and you invested about $1.5 million. It's gotten up to about $1.6 million, but you've withdrawn over that period, 10 years now, 11 years going on. Uh, over $700,000. So let's make sure we give credit, not only for the gains, but for the withdrawals, because it's so easy to get unconscious, become unconscious over the spending patterns that, that, that we're we so immersed in. So that's why we have to be conscious. And then we're going to look at what's been happening with uh, minorities in particular, for a host of reasons. And there's some good news on the horizons that last year for Black Americans, for the first time that uh, they actually started to save money. Uh, First time in 2020 than any other year, according to the the survey we've come across. So we'll be talking about that. And then we really wanna, in relation to that topic, look at the widening gap of income inequality. Now, for some folks, uh, particularly of uh, the Republican party, for example, to be perfectly honest, uh, they're according to this as a group, they don't think there's any income inequality. But if you look at the Democrats, and, and we can even make it nonpartisan, when you look at middle income to lower income people, regardless of per- political persuasion, they overwhelmingly agree that there is an income inequality. So we'll talk about that along with the wealth gap. But most importantly, we'll, lo- we'll also look at what can be done along these lines so that you individually can narrow that gap. Uh, and, and not have to wait for your ship to come in. But let's figure out a way to, uh, to swim out to that ship and bring it in, right? So that you can uh, have as much fun as other folks are having, or at least feel like you're, you're part of the, uh, the, the party that's going on. Speaking of parties, I mean, look at this stock market. One of our uh, sources suggests that, uh, you know, the stock market is as drunk as Tom Brady. <laughs> I, I think that's a good visual, right? Uh, he's, uh, of course, the uh, famous quarterback who won his seventh Super Bowl title t- just last month with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, has made roughly $260 million over his 21 years in the NFL, and that's just the money he's made on the field. So he's enjoying the trappings of fame like private jets, no lines at restaurants, and a marriage to the most beautiful supermodel, Giselle Bundchen. And his off-field endorsements bring in, in even more income. So whether you love him or hate him, he's doing a fantastic job of building a legacy that many folks will remember for, a, for our lifetimes. So he seemingly has a great, a, a great life. And we saw last month him throwing the Lombardi trophy from one boat to another. Clearly he was drunk and needed help walking afterward. He blamed his state of intoxication on a little avocado tequila. Now he's 43 years old and played in his 10th Super Bowl, it would be a nice time to step away from the violent game of football because what else is likely to happen? You know, when we look at folks who make gargantuan levels of income, we see that they somehow find a way to get hurt, particularly with football players. That happens a lot. Or they end up in bankruptcy. So we want to look at what what we're doing in terms of our behavior. But, But one of the reasons we're bringing this feature up is, is maybe his career apparently is not over. He says he wants to play two more years. I don't know why, but I guess, what else am I going to do? Mow my lawn? Uh, but at the end of the day, as I say, how, how do we, when we get to the top, how do we get down from the top? Is it gracefully? Sorry, John Grace, right? Uh, or is it uh, with, with ruin? <laughs> is it going to hurt a lot? So we'll, we'll look at those details, but I, I think that's a good uh, perspective to keep in mind. We promise you that we will always uh, start with looking at how the markets are doing, not just for the day. We don't think that's very helpful. You can't see the trend. But for the year, that helps maybe see a little broader trend. Because I can say to you that after paying for independent research since 1999, one of the things that we do not study is cycles in general and demographics in particular. So sometimes there's uh, 40-year cycles, 70-year cycles. 90-year cycles. And the cycles that we tend to pay attention to is what's happened in my lifetime, which means you missed what happened before you got here, or we're looking at what happened in our parents' lifetime, which means that we might be looking at the last 50 or 60 years, but we're not looking at 100 years, okay? So, that's one of the reasons, for example, that as far as I can see, it's one Texas storm that exposed an energy grid completely unprepared for, some people call it weather, some people call it climate change, I don't care what you call it, we want you prepared for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. And let's recognize you can't see the unforeseen if you're stuck looking in your rearview mirror. And the rearview mirror is proportionately a lot smaller than your windshield. So we've got to look in the rearview mirror, but we should probably be spending more time looking ahead in terms of preparing for the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, let's look at a worst case scenario as opposed to say, well, that hasn't happened. You never not got to a, a one degree in the last hundred years, so that will never happen. I, I can't see the future either, but as I was talking to a friend just yesterday with a home uh, outside of Dallas, uh, 15 breaks to his water pipes. 15. So uh, now he's got to deal with the insurance carriers. It's just not a lot of fun. At any rate, looking at the market, uh, starting with the Dow year to date, what we see is this is an interesting day because we're seeing kind of a, you'll see the, the, the distinction here, the change for the Dow so far today is is only like 0.04, okay, as, as a loss. Uh, year to date, it's up 12.97, which is a very good, good return for, you know, not even three months into the year. Uh, the S&P, Uh, Off 26 today, up 2.17 for the year. That, of course, is from January 1 through today, and the market closes in about 50 minutes. NASDAQ, remember last year, the NASDAQ was where the Dow was all year in terms of being disproportionately much better in positive returns. Again, the the Dow up nearly 12.97 year-to-date. NASDAQ up a whopping 1.3%, 1.3%. That's barely positive territory. So this leads back to what we started with. Is this market drunk as as Tom Brady can get drunk? We'll see. But notice that the loss today is over 2% for the NASDAQ, down about 275 points in real time just today. So um, interesting times. But this is why we're saying we want to prepare for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen Because we could be doing a replay this year of what we were doing last year, and if you recall, from February 19th through March 23rd, if I'm not mistaken, the markets were off about 35% in about five weeks. And the real point here, of course, is most of us were not prepared for that kind of loss. Certainly, we were not anticipating the velocity of loss to be so dramatic and so large in a very short period of time. I mean, you're busy, you're trying to deal with COVID, you're trying to deal with life and your family and health issues. You wake up three, four weeks later and go, oh my goodness, look at what happened to my money. Uh huh. So that's why we think it's very important to build the systems in advance that will pull your money to safety, regardless of how busy you might be in your life. And let's be clear, that's something that most investors and most investment advisors don't help investors accomplish. So we're all left to wake up to an OS moment. And of course, OS stands for oh shucks, right? So Daniel, let's get to the seven worst things people do with their their stimulus uh, checks. What do you see there as the list, thanks to uh, Yahoo Finance?
2: Well, the first thing, John, is if uh, if this passes, Americans are going to get another $1,400 coming, looks like around the end of March. So that's uh, on top of the 600 that was sent earlier this year and on top of uh, unemployment relief and, and stimulus for last year. So the government is going to continue doing everything that they can to keep the market stimulated and moving, which I think is in everyone's best interest really. Okay. So as we look as we look at, at money coming in, it was really interesting to see what happened last year. A lot of people, especially young people, took that money and invested it. And that's where we got a lot of new people coming into the stock market. And now I know, I hear a lot of chatter about what, what young people are buying and they're very interested in that. So I think it's pretty interesting to look at with more money coming in, what should people not be doing with this money? And this is, for, for a lot of people, this is, This is very important money. This is money that they need. This is to keep them going. So the first thing on the list is don't go on a shopping spree. Just because you're getting $1,400 here in one shot doesn't mean you can go spend it on something you don't need. That is typically the wrong thing to do with any lump sum of money. If you don't need it, don't buy it. And certainly if you can't pay it in cash, don't buy it. So don't put it on credit. Exactly. Yes. What's number two? Number two, this is an interesting one. Don't pay off debt without having savings. Wait wait a it's minute. am Are, I supposed to pay down my debt? It's tempting. It sounds great. But the challenge is if you don't have that savings, that, that safety net in the bank, what happens if you need if you need some cash? You're forced to go back to your debt. So if you take this fourteen hundred dollars and you and you and you put it towards your credit card, and for whatever reason that credit card goes away, this say let's say Visa actually stops that card or takes the, the takes the card away, now now you 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 lost the money that you got went to the credit card. Credit card is now gone. Now now that spending power is gone.
1: If well, you I don't. Get- I'm sorry, but let me interrupt here real quick, Daniel, because one of the things that people are uh, unforeseen, we're not prepared for, is you still have the credit card. They didn't take it away, but they reduced your credit limit at the that middle of the night. It happens when you don't want it to happen. So we're always going to say pay yourself first.
2: It's so important to have that that, that, that savings. It, it's, if you need it, it's it's crucial. So one of the things we're, we're, we're big advocates of is having cash that you can put your hands on. So if you're getting a lump sum, it might be worth look at putting in the bank for now, as opposed to paying off that debt and keep servicing that debt, um, at least until you can put some cash together and pay that debt
1: off with income. Now, should it be more than six months of your essential costs that you can keep on in cash on hand? Should it be a year? Uh, I'm not a huge advocate of keeping that much
2: cash. I, I like, I like having, I like having that much available so you can put your hands on it, but having it all in cash, be, you start to get lazy money. So uh, conventional thought nowadays is six months cash savings in the bank. So if you're making $50,000 a year, and that's uh, about the average income, that means for most people, the recommendation would be $25,000 in cash. It's a lot of cash to have in the bank that's not earning any interest or any any earnings really so what where i like to be is around two or three months of cash savings and have the rest in some kind of brokerage account that can work for you that's actually making some money so keep it invested and you know you can put your hands on it if you need it so for most brokerage accounts you can set up some kind of ach link and money can go back and forth so if you need a larger a larger some than two or three months uh, that you have in the bank, then you can go to your brokerage account, sell it and and get that money deposited in your bank account. But there's not a lot of situations when you're going to need six months of cash
1: in one shot. Good point. So you're saying have a first place for putting cash where you know you're not getting any interest, but you have immediate access, and maybe a brokerage account where it might fluctuate a little bit, but you can actually put it in a place where it's going to fluctuate a lot less than, say, 100% stocks, but you know you have access to that money. And while you're not using it, you might make a little bit of money on it. Is that what you're you're saying?
2: For th- for those most of those investments, they're going to be lower risk for us. We're not looking to 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 hit any home runs there. We're looking for singles and doubles. We wanna we wanna make solid returns without taking without taking on too much risk for that portion of the money because we know we might we might need it at some point. But we want to do better than the point zero one percent we're getting in interest at the bank right now.
1: Perfect. What's number three?
2: Uh, do not invest it carelessly. So what a lot of people did last year is they took that money and they invested it in high risk positions high risk stocks or they or they leveraged their account to get to, to be able to buy more than they, than, than they did with what they had that can be very dangerous if the market moves against you it could be gone in an instant.
1: Well, and that's the thing that we're going to talk more about, because I think uh, we've got a lot of people who are, you know, fear of missing out is huge, huge, okay, all over the place. Uh, and one popular investing app offers five different automated investment portfolios of varying risk levels. So you can find one that's best seated for your financial goals that are all built on expecting them that money to grow. Most of those apps, I'm not sure if any of those apps have any kind of a stop loss, if you will, or some kind of mechanism to limit the losses so as long as you're making money you feel smart and let's be clear that has nothing to do with your intelligence losing money doesn't often have anything to do with your intelligence either but it's so easy just to put uh, willy-nilly some here, some there no rhyme no reason and most importantly no target what what kind of what's your end goal when do you need the kind of money so that you can make work optional on your time frame what's number four
2: number four is not thinking about the future so for a lot of people uh they're they're so focused on today and whether it be what they're spending or what debt they have they're not looking at saving for the future and when i mean the future i mean long term i mean probably like retirement savings this might be if you have income and you have this money coming in this might be a good piece of money that you can contribute towards your retirement account uh, as opposed to putting it in a brokerage account or in your bank, uh, if you have, if you're, if you're in a place where you have income coming in, you can cover your expenses. This would be a great option as a as a traditional Roth IRA contribution. It grows tax-free and it it, it can be used at a later point, and it it really helps you later.
1: And, and it also comes out taxed uh, at no taxes at the withdrawals after 59 and a half, right? With the Roth.
2: Depending if it's a traditional or a Roth, yeah, the traditional comes out with taxes, and Roth comes out with no taxes.
1: Exactly. All right. What about using cash as a just you know? I'm going to feel good. We're going to go buy stuff. We're going to go out to eat.
2: Uh, similar, similar one. Don't spend it carelessly. Okay keeping keep, in, keep your priorities in mind know what you really need to do with this money and going going to just spend it on on going out to eat and, and splurging that's that's a horrible use of the money if it could be needed it could be needed later
1: and let's summarize for before the break six and seven something to do with chain stores and uh just supplies I, I gotta buy all the all the toilet tissue I can buy number six is don't blow it,
2: blow it on a chain don't spend it at chain stores this could be the chain stores are a lot of businesses are suffering right now, but the ones that are suffering the most are the smaller ones. So the idea is if you spend it at your local stores, as opposed to the big chains, it might go a little farther for your community. And number seven is don't stock up on pointless supplies. Now Ah. pointless, pointless supplies, that could be argued what a pointless supply is, but you could, you could argue that water bottles are a pointless supply. Most of our, most of our tap water is filtered and, and, and ready to be able to drink. So why would you go buy why would you go buy water bottles when you could drink your tap water if you needed
1: to? Or a lifetime supply of toilet tissue, which is what exactly. I witnessed at Costco just a year ago. Okay, so we've got to stop for a short break, folks. We'll be right back after this uh, this moment. And uh, so stay stay put. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey.
1: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy.
0: Now, back to Fiscal Fitness.
1: Welcome back, my friends. John Grayson, Daniel Medina here at uh, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. So glad you could spend some time with us this afternoon. And let me say that if you do send us a message, uh, particularly when we have your email address, I'm happy to send you the Kindle version of my book, Making Finance Make Sense. I think of it as a beach entrance By the way, it's um, apparently uh, rising on the bestseller list, so it's only $15 at eBay. I think it's $16 at Amazon. Uh, Please make favorable comments because that helps get the book on the bestsellers list, which is my new goal for 2021. You know, you finish one goal and you go, okay, that was good. Then you wake up the next morning and go, that was yesterday. You have a new goal. You've got to get it on the bestsellers list. So we are happy to make that book available to you, as I say, in the Kindle version and what will happen is you'll receive a message from Amazon once we have your email address, and they will send you my gift. And we hope that will be helpful for you to have these conversations that are so important about money, right? It's a conversation we just don't discuss, particularly minority families. With with uh, white America, the, these are conversations that get passed down from one generation to the next. And that's a very healthy thing. Well, that's a good habit for us to follow, and the rest of us need to do the same thing to put these ideas on the table so we can digest, we can, you know, figure out what works, what doesn't work. You've got people at the table who are your advocates. They love you. They care about you. But if we don't share the ideas, how the heck can we possibly play the game? Well, it looks like we've had... uh, According to Yahoo Finance, last year Black Americans, speaking of playing the game, became first-time investors. More Black Americans became more uh, first-time investors in 2020 year 2020. Sorry, than any other year. There we go. So uh, that's good news, and this has been driven. Uh, Daniel's been talking about this by the guess what? The under 40 crowd. It appears uh, this is a uh, survey from Ariel Investment Schwab Black Investor Survey, found that there were 15 percent new black investors last year, 2020, compared with only 4% new white investors. So it looks like there's a, a equal number of younger black investors against their white counterparts under 40 years that are trying to do what they can to close the wealth gap and it looks like black americans are talking more today about all aspects of money debt paying for college the stock market and that's the beginning of financial security because it demystifies some of the language around money i think that's a a a good point uh so what we find is blacks are still way behind their white counterparts when it comes to building wealth the survey finds that only fifty five percent of black Americans own stocks compared with seventy one percent of white Americans. And we find that the uh, the investing gap could hurt blacks' retirement savings and their ability to pass on wealth to the to the next generation. When it comes to participating in a retirement plan, Blacks and whites are fairly comparable, 53 versus 55%, but the survey reveals whites contribute more per month. Black Americans invest invest all of $231 on average, compared to all of $291 for their white counterparts. And more than twice as many black investors, 12% compared with white percent of white investors, said the COVID pandemic led them to borrow against their retirement plans. So Daniel, let's, let's turn to, uh, on that one in terms of borrowing on the retirement plans and notice the, the, the amounts that are, being, that are being set aside. Something is better than nothing. We encourage that. But uh, talk about how clearly 231 versus 291, those are small dollar amounts. And, and what does that say about their ability to make work optional? we got silence, Daniel.
2: Sorry. There we off. go. So yeah, $291 versus $231, it might sound like a small difference, but it's really, it's about, it's 25% more for the white families versus hmm. the versus the black families. Now, that's, that's interesting because certainly if we're talking about doing that over, let's say, a 20-year period and getting an 8% return on average, the, the extra 25% accounts for over a 30% more savings over a 20-year period. Say that again,
1: because those are important numbers.
2: So over a 20-year period at, at, at 8%, that extra $60 per month accounts for, equals
1: thirty uh, percent over 30% more savings. And this is why it's so important, folks, to see what, pay attention to what you are doing. Is it sufficient? It might be comfortable, but is it sufficient efficient. Many recommendations, many advisors recommend that you put 10% of your gross earnings aside. And the next question becomes, is that enough? But let's also understand, either you're going to answer the question, or you're going to find out more than likely, it was insufficient when you need the money. As we we keep using this example of our couple, and by the way, we do work for at no cost for frontline workers, where we help them see what kind of, uh, Financial plan they need to put in place. One couple, mid 30s, making $100,000 in round numbers, about $60,000 to the wife, $40,000 to the husband. What they saw in 90 minutes of our spending uh, time with them is that they need to set aside 15%. Now let's understand they're mid 30s. If it were 40, if they were mid 45s, it would not be as low as 15%. But now they know, and now they're on track. To save $15,000 a year, try to get that 7 or 8% return, and that's about $1,300 a month. It's not just some arbitrary 231, right? Or I'm just going to accept whatever the employer gives me. Excuse me? Aren't you number one? Aren't you? a priority or, or shouldn't be at the first of the list and make sure you take care of yourself. If you don't do it, who's going to do it for you? But so many folks have no target. They're just putting aside a little bit of money, uh, but they're not really doing the math to see, for example, a $50, $60 difference makes a 30% in difference in the amount of money that you have in 20 or 30 years. That's significant. So we need to be Looking at what our long term goals are and then reviewing what we're doing no less than annually so that we can see that that we're on track. So it's good to see that uh, folks are getting into the, into the, uh, up to the bar to play the game, investing in the market. But what's the downside of that, uh, if there's a, if this is, if this market is drunk like Tom Brady? Daniel.
2: Well, people are gonna get really turned off to investing, which happens, uh, pretty often when you're, when you talk to certain people and they they don't have a uh, good experience with investing, they never want to do it again. So it becomes having that conversation of saving and investing becomes very challenging. And it's really in, in people's best interest to do because over a long period of time, certainly the stock market returns positive numbers and good positive numbers um, like 10 10% per year. But if you have a negative experience when you first start doing it, that's going to really turn people off to it. And I'm, I'm worried that we're people are getting set up for a bad experience here.
1: Yeah, as a friend of mine would say, we're cruising for a bruising. Okay. As long as you're making money and those who started investing, as many young people did after the market low a year ago, approximately March 23rd, you've only seen upside. And as long as you're making money, you pat yourself on the back and you get very complacent. And as one of the pandemic doctors said emphatically, the problem with becoming complacent is that uh, you're going to miss something. Okay. You're not ready for what around the corner. Uh, you're effectively like Rip Van Winkle, or you're like the proverbial ostrich where your head's in the sand, but you're revealing some very dear parts to the wind or to nature. <laughs> and so that that's what we're concerned about. Yeah, all the upside is great. Again, most of us don't have a target, so we're just kind of throwing darts in the dark but uh, most folks have no agenda or plan for one, what they're trying to achieve in terms of the retirement plan. And two, how can they limit their losses? Do they even recognize what kind of loss is acceptable to them? That's a question that for the most part, the financial planning industry hasn't posed investors. All we offer you is let's figure out, are you conservative, moderate or aggressive? And my problem with those terms is that I don't understand the definition. Daniel doesn't understand the definition and you don't understand the definition. So what the heck are we talking about? And then, you know, we'll, we, uh, I will always remember one good client, uh, uh, rocket scientist says, "Well, you know, I'm a conservative investor, and we're looking at the real estate portfolio and the stock portfolio, and going, well, th- those reports are showing a different story, <laughs> and, and I need you to know that we're going to believe the reports. We can't believe you. You've gotten comfortable. You've gotten complacent. You think you're conservative. That's what you want to believe because that fits your motif or your narrative, if we if you will. But when you're all in uh, with the with the stock." at the level that you are, 85% stock, 15% bonds, that's not a definition that doesn't qualify as being conservative. That's a pretty aggressive portfolio being in primarily all stock. So uh, it's also interesting that, uh, you know, so many people have borrowed against their accounts. And that's why we were talking earlier about the importance of having a first level of access to cash, like the bank, and then a second level, an investment account, perhaps, where you can be in a less volatile environment, but you know you have access, and that way that might make some money while you don't need the money. But when you need it, you have, as I say, the first level, and then the second level behind that, long before you want to touch your retirement plans. Because, see, the other math that we don't do is is looking at the differential between if I take this money out and yes, I'm going to pay myself back by the way, which usually doesn't happen, but let's suppose under the best scenario, it does happen. Let's recognize that you took out a lump sum and you paid it back over time, which means that your uh, corpus is significantly less Than it would have been had you left the money intact. And we find in so many cases, people, if they had allowed themselves to look at other options, they wouldn't have been just reaching over to the 401k or the retirement plan so quickly to take out cash because they ran the numbers to see, geez, if there were a way for me to keep this intact and I get this seven or 8% return in 20, 30 years, I have exponentially more money than I would if I take a withdrawal right now and pay myself uh, over time. And again, those are the best scenarios because most of us, we have that intention. That is not our practice. Now, there was a discouraging sign in this study um, where, we, where they, they found that 35% of um, Black investors feel they're treated with respect by the financial services industry. Only 35%. That is not a good sign. So um, as is noted in the study, uh, there's a lot the industry must do to address and ensure that all people have access to the same resources in order to invest. So the uh, black investors in this study found that uh, they, they want to work with a firm that has some level of racial diversity. I, I understand that. I, I mean, I, I it doesn't matter to me. If it's not about being... Uh, political, Democrat, Republican, which I think we get lost in the weeds here in these United States. But this administration, the the the, the people um, who've been brought into the administration, actually re- uh, reflect the people in the country, the last administration, it was the exact opposite. And and, and let's understand uh, for my uh, white friends, they didn't notice it because guess what? You look like each other, you're very comfortable. But this is no longer the United States of America back in the 80s when it was 80%, I'm making up a number, white, that is changing. And I guess some people have a problem with that. But the point is, is that if, if you're going to a party and it's all one gender, for example, you, if you're the opposite gender, you might not feel very comfortable at that party and vice versa. So we all want to see folks who look like us and we'd love to do business with people who look like like us, particularly when they're as competent as everyone else, but there should not be some disparity between how we feel treated when we go to to work with the professionals because it, it's scary enough. It, it It's more scary than, than getting a root canal for many people in their experience. We should be lowering the bar so that it's uh, easier or providing a beach entrance for people to get in the water and enjoy the water along with everyone else, as opposed to, you know, feeling like, well, I'm not being treated as well because uh, I'm being, I'm being talked to like I'm, really ignorant uh, and I'm being talked down to, which I don't think that would happen if my complexion was different. That's not a good experience. Well, we'll, we'll take a break at this point and then we'll come back and, and really dive into this situation to look at um, income inequality, how, how the, the income and the gaps seem to be widening. They certainly haven't narrowed on average, on average, and we'll talk about that. Don't study the people you know, study the average people first, Um, and then we'll be looking at uh, some ways that you you can take responsibility for reducing that gap for you and your family. So we'll be right back. Please sit tight.
2: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn.
0: At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return That's ybpoor.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey.
1: The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network.
0: Now back to fiscal fitness.
1: Welcome back, folks. John Grace and Daniel Medina here. So glad you spent some time with us this afternoon. And we want to look at this income gap. Now, by the way, I want you to know that I was on another uh, news interview uh, just about a year ago. Um, and it included uh, Kaylee McEnany um, and uh, Stephen Moore. Uh, and the host was Steve Hilton. And the discussion was how pleased particularly Black Americans, should be with how much money they're making in 2020. And, and Stephen Moore said, well, you know, with the house co- household income being where it is, uh, that'd be real good in another country. And I said, Steve, are you moving to Venezuela? I'm not. I thought we were talking about these United States of America. So we'll adjust the numbers a little bit just between last year and this year. And here's where we are. Household income in America is approximately $65,000 a year. That's whether or not one or two people are working. That's the average, 65,000. Now, I don't know where you live uh, in this country, but if you live in this country, 65,000 just isn't really that much. It's just not. And 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 let me. L- l- we're going to look at this backwards and and look at it forward as well. But let's look at it a little bit further under the hood for uh, Black Americans. The average household income, the last time I looked, according to Pew Research, was a, wa- a whopping forty thousand dollars. 40- a year. And for Latinos, a whopping $50,000 a year. By the way, Asian Americans were closer to $90,000 a year. So it's real easy just to paint everything with a broad brush. You know, everybody's doing better. We'll talk about that. It's not true. But I want to show you why. And it's not about, again, black versus white or, you know, one race against the other or red versus blue. This is about. All of us in the and 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 probably the best thing I learned in middle school in history class. Yes, I remember one history class where the discussion was on uh, the World War II and how the Navy learned that the convoy could only travel at the speed of its slowest ship. I'm like, wow, another new word I learned in, in middle school at Audubon was um, uh, anomaly and um, you know, uh, what a um, Analogy, there we go. Okay. It's like, what a great analogy. If the ships can't move any faster than the slowest ship, that's how the world works. That's how the country works. So we need to look at how all of us are doing as opposed to, I've got a yacht. I'm sorry you don't have driftwood, uh, but you know what? That's too bad. So let's put things in perspective. And and so I was trying to say for Asian Americans, it's more like close to $90,000. And the, the question that came up on the show is to what do you attribute that to? I said, well, I don't know, but I submit that we all probably should have spent more time in science and math classes because with our Asian American friends right now who are being mistreated, by the way, that's what they do. They put that kind of priority on your education as opposed to playing chess or checkers or basketball or football. That's what they do. So notice their average is a whole lot higher than everybody else's. So let's put things in perspective. And then I'm going to ask Daniel to, to give us a, the, the percentages because that's what he does. Our, our favorite math man. In 1970, according to the Bureau of the, of the Census, Department of Commerce, the median income for families in 1970 was was $9,870 in 1970. So let's just round up to $10,000. So for black Americans, the average income was a whopping $6,000 or 6,500, somewhere in that neighborhood. So Daniel, just right there, what's that percentage differential?
2: 60% more income. 60%
1: 60% more income. So now here's the question. Today, we have what? The levels for black people at 40,000 and for the average at 65,000. What's that differential? Sorry, 61,000, give me one second. We were looking at, you know- 62%. So, well, hang on a second. The first was 60. 60 60% more. This 60, is- now it's 62. more. So folks, we're doing this in real time. Notice the difference has not budged. It is mind blowing because we all wanna believe we're all doing much better. And here we can see 1970s, not that far back, the difference then and the difference today are identical. The, the, The gap has not been reduced it's the same. That's mind-blowing. These are the conversations I think we should be having in our homes to really see what's going on because it's so easy just to say, oh, everybody gets the same uh, opportunities today. Things have changed so much. They have Some things have not changed at all. So now let's even look a little further because, see, when we look at the Homer Simpsons, average Americans, you know, living in Ohio, they're, of course, uh, mythical. But the point is, is that what many of us do is we look at what's going on with the people we know, as opposed to looking at, what's going on with the average Americans because we don't want to really, you know, fraternize with them. But I'm saying to you, we are, we're, we're looking at it backwards. We should be looking at the average first because there's more people who are average. And notice when you look at the people you know, they are for the most part outliers. In other words, they had more education. In other words, they make more money. They save more money. They pass this information down from generation to generation. So look at the rich people like yourselves, second, and look at the average people first because again, there's just more of the averages that's driving so much of what's going on. So let's look at it like this if the average income in 1970 was uh, $10,000, and I remember buying a Toyota Corolla on my way to Crenshaw High School, it was $2,170 out the door. $2,170. So let's see, that's what, roughly 20%, Daniel? About, yeah, 21, okay. 21%. And today a Corolla is somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 20, 25,000.
2: I believe so. It's been a while since I' looked at Corolla prices.
1: <laughs> well, who looks anymore? But that, the last time I looked, that was, that was pretty uh, representative from what I, I saw. Here's the notice the difference here. If you if it was 20 percent to buy. A, a you know not even a high-end car a medium-end car an inexpensive car back in 1970. If the same car today is roughly let's just make it simple twenty thousand dollars, doesn't the household income need to be more like hundred thousand dollars to keep the spending power the same?
2: Yeah, by by that math, yeah you're you're 100 correct. So if the average Corolla I just checked on Google the MSRP is twenty thousand twenty five dollars.
1: Bingo. That's close enough. <laughs> yeah, so average so,
2: income based on that math. Should, if if we're, if, if income is increasing the same as everything else, as yeah. inflation, and we're saying Corolla is a baseline for inflation, which I think it's a fair representation.
1: It's a fair representation, it's one. I, I yeah. think it's a good way to look at it. You know, we, we could dig deeper, but most of us don't look that far. <laughs> so notice if, if all Americans household income on average was $100,000 today, as opposed to $65,000 today, would it make a difference and we all know the truth the difference would be huge sorry it it would be a big difference what what do you say about that daniel
2: i think you're 100 right um it's it's a huge problem income yeah i did the math just to look at the average um compounded growth from 1970 to to 2021 and that's 3.7 percent now that that goes in line with with what the, the what long term inflation is but we all i think we all believe that long term inflation number of 3% is is low and that's just not a fair representation of actual inflation so right 3.7% growth annualized is is not
1: much well, and, and that's what I was trying to say on the show where I was getting a lot of pushback because they were so happy to drink the Kool-Aid and wear the uh, rose-colored glasses to tell me that I should be happy with these results. And and, and one of their points was, oh, look, uh, for the lower income people, the, the, there's been a 4% increase. And I'm like, wait a minute, folks. If you're making a million dollars, 4% that's what, $40,000? That's meaningful. If you're making $40,000, 4%, that's what, $1,600? Huh, hello? hello? What was that, uh, $125 a month? $130 a month? About that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what can you do with $130 every month? An extra $130 a month? Should we be jumping in and down doing backflips? I really do not think so. And, and remember what I said it, it's the, 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 the convoy has to uh, proceed at the speed of the slowest ship. Notice, for example, that when it comes to longevity in these United States of America, in fact, we were talking about this two weeks ago, where in in 2019, the longevity uh, life expectancy for U.S. citizens was 79. And then we found like the next day, the report from the CDC showing that the average life expectancy for Americans in 2020 has been reduced a full year down to 78 from 79, just a year before because of this COVID and, you know, how we do healthcare here. And notice we don't do healthcare like other developed countries do where everybody's included. And by the way, guess what's happening with the life expectancy for other countries? It's going up a whopping 14, uh, 14 tenths of 1% in Japan, but I think the average life expectancy in Japan is 84 and a half, and I believe in Canada, it's 82. So notice, while we're talking about our American exceptionalism, patting each other on the back, right, we're all not doing as well, and we're not taking care of the slowest ships. So now, when we look a little bit further, uh, in terms of economic inequality in the U.S., uh, from Pew Research, we find that over the past 50 years, the highest earning 20 of U.S. households have steadily brought in a larger share of the country's total. So that highest earning 20% of families made more than half of all U.S. income as recently as uh, 2018. And this is, we were talking about how we do relative to other countries. So we find that income inequality in the US is the highest of all the G7 nations, according to the OECD, Organization for Economic Cooperation Development. Uh, The highest level of income inequality of the G7. Now we're supposed to be the American exceptionalism, right? We're supposed to be the, the city on the hill. We're supposed to be doing it the best and the brightest compared to everyone else. And then notice we were talking about about uh, how what's happened since 1970. The, the, uh, this report says exactly the work that we were just doing. In the U.S., black and white income gap has held steady since 1970. Held steady. Hmm, And then as we were talking about uh, Americans in general, over 61% of Americans say there's too much economic inequality in the country today, but that view differs by political party and household uh, income level. So now let's look uh, a a little bit further because it it, it gets, I I think more interesting to see what's happened just recently. I mean, look at the, the, the billionaire net growth just in the year 2020, on average, This list shows that uh, the average increase was 57%. Just last year, just in the last twelve months, uh, then this comes from uh, data stream. How the rich got richer during COVID nineteen. Here's how American billionaires performed. One of the, our clients responded, getting ready for this program, and say, "Well, I understood that the rich get richer, but I also understood that the poor get children." Well, I've got news for you. That used to be true, but guess what? Most of us aren't having children <laughs> in the world. And last time I looked, it it appeared as though the birth rate in these United States of America this year would be lighter by 300 to 500,000 fewer children. So, when people talk about, oh, we just want to make America the way it was, well, it wasn't so good for all of us, and recognize that uh, clearly some of us don't, weren't, aren't doing what we used to do. We're not having children for a host of reasons, and I don't think that's going to change effectively, particularly when we find one friend of mine tells me she and her husband were looking at having a child and they, they discovered the cost after insurance was still 5,000. So they're still thinking about it, 5,000 per child and we need to have more than one. So yes, 57% gain for the average increase for billionaires. How'd you do last year? So they've been doing extraordinarily well um, and, to, and to look at it a little bit further in terms of detail, When we look at Jeff Bezos, we see that his net worth went from 113 billion to 187 billion. Probably the largest increase by one person is good old Elon Musk, an immigrant, by the way, um, who went from 25 billion to 154 billion dollars. Wow. So now let's really dive a little bit deeper because it's not all bad news. This is uh, just in today's Newsweek. So you might want to pick this up. 19 jobs that pay more than $70,000 a year and they don't require a college degree. That would be encouraging. All right. Things like a gas plant operator, work like a a farmer, rancher, agricultural manager, $70,000 a year. Transit and railroad police officer, elect—excuse <coughs> me—electrical power line installer or repairer, medium pay, seventy-three thousand four hundred sixty dollars. Lighting technician, media communication equipment worker, very different jobs. But let's notice how many people are looking at. Oh my goodness! The, all the jobs are leaving the the oil industry, and that's all I know, that's all I've done. Well, I'm sorry, that's not much different than when I was a proofreader for the LA Times. And guess what? (laughs) There was something new, a word called computer. We don't need you or the linotype anymore. We're gonna look at proofreading everything we do on something called a computer. I didn't know what that was we got displaced. So clearly their progress is always being made, particularly when it comes to jobs. So we need to not look backwards at the jobs we have, but look forward at the jobs that are needed and see how we can show up for those jobs. In terms of our children, if you really want to have an unprecedented advantage compared to everybody else on the planet, have your children learn, be really good at speaking and writing English, be proficient in Spanish, and how about taking on Mandarin? Look at the numbers in the world, and those three languages probably covers most of the areas, but now to the extent that your children had English, Spanish, and Mandarin under their belts, you know what? They would make the world their oyster. <laughs> they would be able to go wherever the the job op- opportunity presented itself and present themselves and certainly look a whole lot brighter than everybody else on the list in terms of who wants that job because there are a lot better prepared. And that's what we're talking about, folks. It's preparing for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen, but enjoying the process because it is enjoyable to the extent that we feel like we're involved. So we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Daniel Medina and I will be right back here with you next Wednesday at uh, Fiscal Fitness on Voice America. So you have a safe week and we'll see you in seven days.